Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Okay, welcome to uh, this podcast for the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. My name is Nick Jepson. I'm a Horsworth Fellow in Chinese Political Economy at GDI, and I'm very pleased uh, this afternoon to be joined by Professor Rhys Jenkins, who is Professor of Development Economics at uh, the University of East Anglia's School of International uh, Development. So thank you for joining me. Thank um, you. I'd like to ask uh, quite a few questions, really, particularly about uh, your recent book that you're going to be delivering the lecture on later, which is called How China is Reshaping the Global Economy, Development Impacts in Africa and Latin America. Um, but first off, um, I kind of wanted to broaden it out a bit and talk about your work on um, sort of China and the Global South, China and Latin America that you've been uh, I guess, writing about for how long now? Probably 12 or 15 years or so? Yeah, I think it's about 15 years since I started working on China's impact on Latin America and the global south. Um, And of course, before that, I worked on broader issues of globalization. Mm. um, But I became interested in the impacts that China was having as the new kid on the block in terms of globalization and how that was affecting um, the rest of the world. Um, so the book, in a way, is the result of extended research over 15 years, and um, it took me about five years to actually write the book. And the problem, of course, with, as I'm sure you know, mm. doing anything about China is that things keep happening, and it keeps changing yeah. so rapidly, and um, keeping up both with events and keeping up with the material that was coming out on the impacts of China and its involvement in the global south um, meant that it was quite a prolonged period of trying to put the book together. Sure, absolutely. I, I suppose that's that's one thing that I wanted to ask about, really, is that um, if you think back to, I know you were involved in, in work on uh, Asian drivers sort of in the mm. mid-2000s, mm. And, and from that period to, to now, where we are in 2019, um, how do you think, uh, I suppose, two questions, how do you think the the sort of field of China and Latin America, China and Africa has evolved, and how has your thinking more broadly evolved on, on those topics? Well, I think it was a very new field at that mm. point, and the Asian drivers' work was more or less the first attempt to try and put something together in an academic context um, and to try and theorise some of the issues about um, how China's rise was... Uh, affecting other parts of the world. Um, And of course, you know, what's happened since then is that China has become much larger, much Mm -hmm. more significant as an actor, both in um, sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America. Um, And I think, you know, largely what we were looking at um, in the early days, in the mid-2000s, were trade relations, because that seemed to be... uh, you know, where the action was in terms of China's growing imports of commodities um, from the global south and exports of manufactured goods there. Um, And, you know, Chinese foreign investment was relatively limited, beginnings to to emerge, um, and similarly, Chinese lending finance 
was on a relatively limited scale. So we didn't know very much about that because there wasn't very much to know about. So I think in those respects, um, you know, the kind of economic relations and interactions between China and Global South have expanded considerably since um, over the last 15 years since we started this work. Sure. Um, I, I think turning to, to the book now, I think one of the things that's, that's sort of quite... Uh, stands out about it compared to to other work in this field is um, uh, that very often you have books or articles that tend to deal with China's engagement with one world region or sometimes one one country, um, and I think it, it's one thing that's particularly interesting about this book is is the the focus on two. So you have Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I suppose the the question would be in terms of that. A comparative approach, what sort of insights in particular do you think that uh, that, that approach brings to, to the field? Right, well, I think it does help to, to illustrate the fact that China's impact and relations are not um, uniform around the world. I know there tends to be, and I'll talk about this in the lecture, tends to be um, discourses which see China as a unitary actor, mm. um, which is going around either you know, spreading world peace and harmony, or um, Chinese imperialism around the world, and um, tends to ignore both the um, different kinds of actors that are involved in different um, Chinese relationships, and also the importance of um, agency in the countries where, where China is engaged. And I think, I mean, in both uh, Africa and Latin America, that latter uh, aspect is becoming receiving more attention than it was originally. But I think, you know, if one wants to understand uh, differences between um, different parts of the world, and um, then those issues are really brought to the forth, um, to the foreground. Um, and that's what I think is one of the things that I want to try and underline. You know, that it's not just a matter of China coming and doing as it pleases wherever it operates, but that there are local interests and these are different in different countries and different um, regions of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one thing that, that sort of struck me is, is that uh, emphasis on heterogeneity, mm. um, both actors within the various countries, the differences between the regions, within the regions, and also the different kinds of uh, Chinese actor as well. Uh, I, I wonder, could you maybe expand a little bit on that, that latter point about the different kinds of Chinese actors that are involved and uh, what sort of engagement they have? And, uh. Right. Um, well, one of the things that I would have liked to have got more hard data on, but it's quite difficult to, to get information, is about the role of private Chinese investors. Um, it certainly seems to be more significant in Africa and that's associated with more Chinese migration to Africa than to, to Latin America. Um, and there have been you know, a number of studies of Chinese private enterprises in, in Africa, but not um, so much in Latin America, because I think partly because there's just not so much. I mean, of course, there are um, Chinese restaurants and Chinese retailers and things in Latin America, but I think in terms of um, the entry of, of Chinese um, SMEs into the region, it's been much less significant. So, um, and that has, you know, created particular kinds of conflicts which are more um, acute in Africa in some ways because of the kind of conflicts between, I mean, not just between Africans and Chinese, but also 
and between, if you like, the, the strategic interests um, of the Chinese state and the commercial interests of Chinese businesses operating in those countries. So you get these kind of conflicts, I mean, like the, the um, illegal gold miners from China in Ghana, which obviously created a lot of um, local problems and harmed China's image in, in Ghana, for instance. Um, so I think that's one area of difference. Um, different in terms of the policy banks involved as well. I mean, the, the dominant lender from China to Africa has been the Exim Bank, which is the concessional, gives concessional loans and is the channel through which um, Chinese aid is distributed. Whereas in Latin America, um, the situation is reversed. So the China Development Bank is much more relatively important than the um, Exim Bank. So, so there are those kind of differences in terms of which Chinese actors are actually involved in, in the two regions. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose uh, uh, sort of one aspect of that that's received quite a lot of coverage, particularly in the UK, for instance, is the controversy around some of the uh, Chinese private firms, such as uh, Huawei, the controversy mm. around the providing broadband. I know this has been an issue, for instance, in, in Africa as well. Mm. Um, I mean, what, what do you make of that kind of controversy? Um, do you think there's grounds for concern? Or? Um, well, I think then, I mean, I'm not a technology expert, so I don't know the details mm. of what the back doors might be through sure. which Huawei might be able to um, infiltrate into, um, you know, communication systems. I think it's partly been manufactured by the US administration because it's part of a wider debate or, or conflict around um, the growing technological capabilities of China and obviously one of the things that you know the leading powers economic leaders have always done is to try and stop this catching up of technology by um, others and so you know this is a much broader issue than just the the particular way that it's posed um, in this country and in the US as just being about um, the, the kind of communications technologies I think is a much broader issue of technological catch-up by China that's driving this. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I suppose on that kind of kind of theme, talk, you mm. talked at the beginning about how, you know, this is a field in which things move so fast mm. that it's uh, sort of uh, difficult to keep track mm. at times. But one of the things that I suppose has happened since, uh, since you wrote the book or since the book was published is um, much more of a sort of ratcheting up of... Uh, anti-China stance, anti-China rhetoric on, on the part of the US administration. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder in terms of the, the US-China trade war and also um, some of the rhetoric that you get around debt, for example, mm -hmm. um, what effect do you think this is having in, in, in Latin America, in Africa, in terms of mm -hmm. relationships with China? I think there's... In relation to Africa and Latin America, there's always been that kind of rhetoric mm. from the US and from the West about China. Um, so I don't see it um, as being such a qualitative change. It's just mm. that there's been, you know, there's a new angle to it with, with the debt issue, particularly um, as China's become more important as a lender. 
Um, but there was, you know, before that, it was about, you know, um, Hillary Clinton and um, and Hillary Benn in this country, actually, um, you know, warning African countries about the dangers of China only wanting to access their resources and, mm. you know, leaving holes in the ground, essentially. Um, so I think that that's always been there, as it were. It's just taken a new form. The thing that I think... There's some positive aspects, particularly for Latin America, of course, of the, of the trade war, mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, the most obvious example of that is because one of the major Latin American exports to China has been soybeans. Um, and, of course, the Chinese have been um, shifting their purchases of soybeans from the US to Brazil, Argentina. Um, and so there's been, you know, a boost for those economies and their agricultural exports. And I think potentially as well, you know, insofar as um, China is having more difficulty in accessing the U.S. market because of the U.S. tariffs, then that opens up possibilities for a revival of manufacturing exports from Mexico, for example, which was badly hit, um, you know, when China entered the, the U.S. markets and found that it was falling behind China in terms of exports to the U.S. And now that might get reversed. Sure. Um, I, it's something that you do discuss in the book, of course, and, and uh, you, I know that you've written about uh, previously this question of sort of China's impact on, on manufacturing in Latin America, mm. um, uh, Central America, Mexico, some mm. of the larger South American economies. Mm. Um, and there's also, I suppose, a slightly different question about um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, perhaps some of the uh, Latin American Caribbean countries as well, um, this idea of whether uh, China's sort of dominance in, in manufacturing might block mm. that sort of traditional manufacturing, labour-intensive uh, sort of path to, mm. to development or not something that somebody like Danny Roderick talks about, for example. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder what your, your view on that kind of debate was at this point. Mm. Well, I think that it definitely does um, differ between countries which have, you know, gone quite a long way down um, a path of industrialization and those African countries which uh, or Caribbean as you say as well which don't have as much um, domestic industry and so in a sense um, Chinese imports in those countries have tended to compete as much with imports from other countries Mm -hmm. as they do with um, local production Um, but you're right I mean people have pointed to the problems that it might create in terms of establishing industry but of course even before China um, became a significant exporter of manufacturers. Africa particularly was not mm. having much success in the whole pro- in, in industrialization and the whole process of um, structural adjustment had contributed to deindustrialization mm. in those countries even before China was um, becoming a factor. So it's difficult to say this. To know sure. what would have happened otherwise if it hadn't been for China, whereas in the case of Latin America, it's much clearer the way in which competition, both in the domestic market mm-hmm. and, of course, um, on top of that competition in export markets, mm-hmm. as I was saying about Mexico, um, have really had an impact on domestic manufacturers and on, on workers, of course, in the manufacturing sector. So, you know, in terms of the, the kind of debates that went on about uh, the impacts of China, whereas in Latin America, the concern was about deindustrialization mm. in um, 
sub-Saharan Africa, it was more about, uh, as you were suggesting, blocking industrialization. And also, as far as labor was concerned, it was more about the um, you know, concerns about Chinese companies bringing in Chinese workers rather than African workers losing jobs because of competition from Chinese imports, although there was a bit of that in, in sort of garments. Um, particularly, but in general, that wasn't as much of an issue as it, as it was in Latin America. Okay. Um, yeah, related to this, this as well, I, I suppose that debate is changing a little bit now in terms of there is some hope around, um, uh, obviously, rising wages, particularly on the coast in China, mm -hmm. and the sort of relocation of labour-intensive industries inland perhaps to other mm -hmm. other parts of, of East Asia but also there uh, you know there is some aspiration at least for uh, whether this might have an impact in countries like Ethiopia mm -hmm. the relocation this idea of sort of flying geese mm -hmm. to, to Africa and I know it's something that you write about in, in the book uh, so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your views on right on um, yes um, I'm I'm a s very skeptical about that I mean it's been before by Justin Lin, of course, who was the chief economist at the World Bank, the Chinese. Um, but it seems to me that the evidence all points to you know, Chinese firms, as you were saying, would either, faced with these rising wages, would either relocate it within China or relocate in Asia, um, you know, to Vietnam, to Cambodia, um, Bangladesh, other countries. And Africa is probably... Sub-Saharan Africa is probably the last part of the world that they are likely to um, relocate to. Um, the wages, you know, when you take into account productivity differentials, wages are not that low in Africa. The, the logistics, the transport links, the whole kind of infrastructure isn't really up to providing um, the access to global markets that they can get from other parts of the world. Um, Ethiopia may turn out to be an exception. I mean, there's been a big push, and there are individual firms in um, leather and shoes, for example, um, which have developed exports. But I think, insofar as there are exports from Chinese firms in Africa, they've tended to depend quite heavily on um, preferential trade preferences in the US and in the EU, Agoa in the US and the EU, um, everything but arms. Um, so I don't see that as being a kind of real flying geese kind of model um, working. Now, the other aspect which um, you know, may have more um, or better prospects in terms of industrial development in Africa might be production for the domestic market. Mm. Um, and some evidence from a number of countries where there has been um, significant Chinese construction companies' involvement in infrastructure, and that's created demand in Angola, for example, um, for um, some Chinese investments in, uh, in building materials. Mm -hmm. So there may be... I would see the post where there is manufacturing investment from China um, into Africa, I still would expect it to be more oriented towards African markets rather than towards global markets, which is what the, the, the kind of flying geese transferring industrial capacity from China in uh, the face of rising wages is actually implying. 
Sure. I, I, again, related to this, I think one of the other sort of uh, concerns around this is, is the idea of um, uh, perhaps relocation of uh, environmentally damaging industries mm. or uh, things like coal, for example, um, to other parts of the world, perhaps Africa, perhaps Latin America, mm. um, as China has a big push on cleaning up its pollution, on mm. carbon emissions, these sorts of things. But then on, on the other side, you have uh, obviously the fact that Chinese firms are now world leaders in, in renewable energy, mm. and there's also a big push in investment of that also. So, yeah. I mean, how would you say, I, I'm sure it's not as simple as a sort of one side and the other balance, mm. but how do you see these different factors playing out with the, the two regions that you look at? Um, well, again, I don't think in the terms of... Um the polluting industries, it's so much um, relocation out of China to those regions, but China has financed, mm. you know, coal power stations um, in Africa, um, which one might say is rather offsets the finance that they also provide in terms of um, renewables. Um, and of course, the biggest area in both in terms of energy in both Latin America and in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, Chinese involvement has been in hydropower, mm -hmm. and I mean, there's obviously a debate about you know, the environmental implications of hydropower. So um, that's also you know a big question mark, um, and the social implications as well. So I think it's certainly the case in in Africa that there's been significant. Um, Chinese investment into in Ethiopia, for example, into wind farms. Um, so that's a kind of positive aspect. I mean, much less um, in Latin America, I think, a bit in Chile, but there's not been very much um, investment in renewables mm. outside of hydropower um, in Latin America by China. Okay. Um, I, I, I suppose one of the other things that you, you do talk about in the book in terms of the difference between the regions mm. is... Um, uh, about conflicts around environmental issues mm. and, and the ability of, um, say, uh, you know, social movements or, or governments or whatever to, mm. uh, to limit environmental damage or to mm. deal with mm. environmental conflicts that arise. So uh, I, I wonder if you'd say something about that as well. Well, I think that's going back to what we were talking about um, previously, the importance of local agency mm. in these situations mm. and the part of that is important. The significance of state capacity and yeah. how far the state is able to regulate um, and obviously that can change as we've seen mm. recently mm. in Brazil it can change <laughs> in terms of the um, political leadership as well in, um, uh, but at least I think you know that there is more capacity for environmental regulations in and these are generalizations of course sure. there may be differences for individual yeah. countries but in general you might say that the states in Latin America um, have been more um, capable in that regard, um, and never. And, and the point that I would make is that because you know, insofar as China has any policies or, or requirements required for its companies that are investing abroad, um, it's usually to respect local environmental requirements. Yeah. So they, they don't impose their own standards, mm -hmm. as they you know always say about other things as well. So, you know, that makes it clear that what's required locally is critical in terms of um, what Chinese 
companies are likely to be doing in, in each country. But I wouldn't want to exaggerate and just give the impression that they're all behaving wonderfully in Latin America and yeah. terribly in <laughs> Africa. I mean, that's certainly not the case. Um, and the other issue, of course, it's not just a matter of um, the state, but also the extent to which civil society is mobilized and um, environmental NGOs, indigenous communities and that regard um, have been significant actors in terms of um, questioning some yeah. of the um, proposals or, or activities of Chinese um, lenders and investors in Latin America particularly. Okay. Um, I maybe just finish with a couple of questions on the sort of broader geopolitical context mm-hmm. and shifts that we're seeing at, at the moment. Um, you mentioned the change of political leadership in mm-hmm. Brazil there. Uh, Bolsonaro, of course, once he came in, is quite critical of China. Mm-hmm. At least rhetorically, there mm-hmm. is this this uh, shift away maybe mm-hmm. from alignment with the BRICS and more towards the mm-hmm. traditional alliance with the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and a broader right would shift in Latin America mm-hmm. as well. Do you think that that is consequential for Latin America's sort of interaction with China, or do you think it's more a rhetorical stance? Yeah. I think that it's, as far as the economic relations are concerned, I think it's more rhetorical. I think that China's shown that it's willing and able to engage economically mm. with countries of all sorts of different political hues. And, um, you know, although um, Bolsonaro was critical of, of China, nevertheless, you know, soya exports from Brazil to China are booming because of yeah. the, the present um, situation. He's not um, saying, oh, we won't export any soybeans to China because, you know, we support the United States and that would be undercutting them. That's, sure. <laughs> and you could see in Argentina when there was a shift, um, uh, when when uh, President Macri replaced um, Cristina Fernandez as president, and it was a shift from the left to the right again of um, political um, power within a Latin American country. Nevertheless, you know, the relationship with China continues. They still, um, you know, borrowed from China. They still traded on a major scale. So I think that it's... There's no clear relationship between economic relations, as it were, in Latin America um, and any kind of political stance vis-a-vis China, I think. I mean, you know... Sure. Um, okay, so I, my final question is quite a broad one, I, I suppose, that I, I was just reading your conclusion and you talk about um, sort of in the aftermath of, of Trump's election and uh, Xi Jinping goes to the, the World Economic Forum, I think, in 2017 mm. and essentially puts forward a vision of um, China as a leader of a sort of new round of uh, globalisation. And so I suppose a, a, a two-part question, really, uh, is what, if anything, do you think is distinctive about that Chinese vision of, of globalisation? And now here we are two years on from that. Um, how do you think it's, it's panning out so far? Well, um, I still think that China, and as you can see in the trade war, the trade war has been instigated by mm. the US. It's the US that's breaking WTO rules and generally... Um, trying to undermine uh, the international system. Um, and China is trying to defend itself from that situation and is still um, arguing for open global markets. And, um, and in that sense, I mean, it's not necessarily because 
Xi Jinping believes in, you know, has a neoliberal view of the world, mm -hmm. but it's that actually China does depend on open markets and in terms of both access to resources and opportunities for, for Chinese business to, to export abroad. Now, I think, I mean, there are some changes of, um, you know, that China obviously wants to have more influence within the international institutions and within the IMF and the, um, the World Bank. Um, but I don't see at the moment, anyway, very clear push to totally transform those institutions. Mm. Yes, there is some parallel institutions that have been built up, like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, but um, they're still working within a rather similar sort of framework, I think. Um, so, I mean, it's one of these great paradoxes, isn't it, that the US is, and it's trashing um, <laughs> free trade and globalization, whereas the, um, the Chinese leadership, while being very authoritarian and uh, at home, is actually advocating for more globalization and market economies. Mm. I guess maybe I'll just sneak one little question yes. at the end, which is, um, do you think that that's something that will endure beyond the Trump administration if, if a Democrat wins in 2020, for example? I'm sorry to put you on the spot and ask you to speculate. But, uh... <laughs> I think it's very much Trump's, um, Trump's position. I think that it would get um, certainly watered mm. down, if not totally reversed, if, um, if there was a change of administration and president. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Professor Rhys Jenkins, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nick.